นโมทัสสะปุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะปุวะทูอะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสัง Many of us are used to this recitation of the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta that we've just joined in this evening. Some of you will be new to it, but it's something that we uh, we recite every Saturday night. And uh, those of you will have, who will have heard me comment on it before uh, will know that, in my opinion, uh, this uh, this discourse is the most profound, most amazing, most incredible utterance that any human being ever made. Throughout all history of all humanity, uh, this is the most relevant thing that ever got said by any human being. This cuts to the core. Uh, uh, whatever else we might be talking about and how we manage to get around in our world, uh, at the very the bottom line is that all human beings who are unaware, unawakened, suffer. And in this discourse, the Buddha is explaining why. And not just why we suffer, but also how to be free from suffering. So again, most of you will be aware that this was the the Buddha's uh, first discourse uh, after his uh, enlightenment, which we will be uh, celebrating tomorrow at the Waisak celebration. Um, of course, it's uh, normally on the the full moon day of the month of Waisak, which is this. Here in this country, this place, uh, on Wednesday, but it's more convenient if we do it on Sunday. So we're going to have our celebration on Sunday and celebrating the enlightenment of the Buddha. And from his enlightenment onwards, it uh, took him three months before he got around to talking about the experience, talking about what happened, talking about his liberation. And when he did get around to talking about his liberation, this is what he had to say. The Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, otherwise known as the elaboration, the discourse on the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, sometimes called the turning of the wheel of the law, but sometimes law can sound like some something that's been decreed, some dogma that some special being has. Kind of said out there, and we're supposed to go along with it. Well, that's not what the Buddha was doing by giving us the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta. Rather, he was speaking from his experience and saying, "Here is what human beings experience. First noble truths: we struggle. Here is the cause. The second noble truth: ignorance in regards to the nature of desire, which leads to craving. Here is what human beings can." Experience, which is nibbana, liberation, the cessation of all the struggling, and here is what human beings really need to be paying attention to if they want this perspective of freedom. So it's not a dogma; it's not something to believe in, but it's a pointing. Buddha didn't give a teaching which should be grasped. In the, in the sense of clinging, and the Buddha didn't say you should believe in this. 
Never did he say that. He did say this is the Dhamma, this is reality, this is actuality that I'm talking about here. You want to pay attention to it. This is the real deal. This is important. But he never said you should believe in this and go to war with people who don't believe in it. Uh, quite the opposite. Um, and rather, it's a pointing. Uh, he says explicitly, he said, the Tathagata can but point the way. Yeah. The Tathagata, speaking about himself, he said, the Tathagata can but point the way. Uh, and the way is the direction that we need to go in. So we all have faith in this possibility. And uh, while we call ourselves disciples of the Buddha, while we make an effort to uh, uh, cultivate integrity and generosity and commitment, these other forces for transformation, because we understand these align us, align our hearts and minds and bodies with the path to liberation, the path that the Buddha walked and reached the end of and realized this possibility of the complete freedom from all struggle. So because we all have faith in this possibility, we make this effort. However, we need reminders because we're kind of half drunk most of the time. <laughs> we're in a state of diminished responsibility. Yeah, we're deluded. We're caught up in the pollutions. Our minds are polluted with with greed and and we do all sorts of things that don't benefit us and benefit others. Uh, we get caught up in hatred. And as a result, we end up doing and saying things that don't benefit us and don't benefit others. And, and we get caught up in delusion, which means we end up doing all sorts of things that don't benefit us and don't benefit others. And these pollutions of greed, hatred and delusion means that we forget and get lost over and over again. And why did I do that? Well... It's not that you're bad or mad. It just means you're, that's called being lost. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. We're lost. And so the Buddha, out of his wisdom and his compassion, from the time of his enlightenment until he died, which is a very long time, spent all his energy dedicated to reminding us. Yeah. And so that's what we've just been chanting here. The Buddha didn't have to deliver the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, the discourse on the turning of the wheel of Dhamma. But he did out of wisdom and compassion so that we've got it as a reminder. So, oh right, oh right, that's, that's why I'm suffering. Oh, I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was his fault <laughs> that I was suffering. Yeah, I thought because of what he said, that was why I was suffering. Or what she did or didn't do, or that, was, that was the problem. No, no, the Buddha reminds us, no, it's because of this, this and this that we are actively engaged as. We're actively creating the causes for the struggle. Struggle is not happening to us. We are doing it. And so we need all the reminders we can get. So that's the way to remember what all these books about Buddhism, all these talks that we can download, these are all reminders pointing us in the direction that we can go if we choose this option. And we can choose other options. We can go somewhere else and get stuck in the swamp or go somewhere else and end up drowning or falling off a mountain or 
go bungee jumping and break our neck. <laughs> There's all sorts of things we could be doing. But the Buddha's advice was, this is what you want to do. In the Pali, Ekhyana Margo, in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the great discourse on the setting up of mindfulness. He talks about the centrality of this practice of being present for our experience in the moment, establishing of sati or mindfulness. So once again, these, these pointers, these reminders, so that once we do get lost, well, we'll remember quicker, but also they'll hopefully help us to not get lost in the first place. That's why we have so many reminders. We have traditional reminders like the Buddha image here. It's actually, if you talk about material form, it's a piece of bronze with a, some chemical patina on it that got shipped over from Thailand. And that's what it is. A nicely sculptured piece of bronze. Symbolically, it's a lot more than that. Symbolically, this Buddha image is a mirror for us, reminding us, reflecting back to us, the potential we have for perfect wisdom and compassion. Now, we don't get a lot of reminders of that. We, what we get, uh, you, you look at magazines, you think, well, you need this, you, know, you need to go and buy this, you need to go and buy that, you need a new car, you need a new processor for your computer, you need an upgrade on your mobile phone, you need this sort of a holiday. You're inherently inadequate. That's the message we get from the consumer society that we're all part of. Capitalism and consumerism gives us the message that we are inherently inadequate. So do actually a lot of the uh, other religions that are around. You're fundamentally flawed and you need something more. Well, what the Buddha said was that you're fundamentally adequate. All human beings have the potential for the realization of what is inherently true. We keep making mistakes, we keep forgetting, we keep creating dreams and hallucinations, which means we think that something else is true. We think that I've got all sorts of problems, that all we think that I'm absolutely wonderful and amazing and everybody should be paying attention to me. Or, or we think that when I get sick and about to die that that's something going wrong. That's what we think, that's all stories that we make up. The reality is that with everything that gets born, gets sick and dies, that's what happens. the stories that we have about our abilities and our weaknesses these these are ideas that arise and cease in our minds but in what is all this taking place what is the reality in which all these ideas and feelings are arising and ceasing that's what the Buddha was pointing to that's what we could call the Buddha mind yeah, okay, in Theravada we don't generally dwell on that sort of a concept of the Buddha mind, but that's what the Buddha was pointing to as the potential for human beings and the activity of that consciousness that is completely free from all unawareness, all the pollutions of greed, hatred and delusion. The activity of that quality of consciousness is perfect wisdom, perfect compassion. Simply not capable of acting in a way that's intentionally going to cause harm to any living being. So when we look at the Buddha image, that's what is reflected back to us. So that's a reminder. It's a really helpful reminder. 
the fact that our Buddha image is so beautiful is a very nice reminder as well. But that doesn't mean to say that we should get overly attached to the reminder. You know, that's like clinging to the books of Dhamma. And the Buddha didn't say that we should cling to the Dhamma. If somebody steals all our Dhamma books, well, I'm sorry for them, they stole all our Dhamma books. But that's not stealing the Dhamma. You can't steal the Dhamma. You can't steal the Buddha. You know, somebody might blow up our Buddha image because they think that it represents something unwholesome. Uh, well, I'm sorry for them if they do such a thing, but that doesn't damage the Buddha. Mm. It damages the Buddha image. You know, stealing the Dhamma books offends the, the uh, approximation of the Dhamma. You know, the Buddha image is a reminder of what's possible for human beings. Wisdom and compassion can be cultivated. doesn't matter how unfortunate we feel we are, how miserable our circumstance, at what stage of life we might find ourselves. It's always possible, right up until our very last breath, to cultivate more wisdom and more compassion. So that's what the, this pointing reminds us of, the Buddha image and the Dhamma. saying that. The teachings that initially give us the right principles, and the principles, as we know, are not. That's not the reality. Those are the structures around which we. Those are the structures we use to reference ourselves, to orient ourselves. The Dhamma teachings are the ways we get orientated in life, the ways we get rightly oriented, so going in the right direction. Like Ajahn Sumedha likes to say, that the, the, um, the, when you're crossing the ocean and you, uh, you use your gadgets to look at the stars, you don't expect to get to the stars, right? You're not going to get to the stars. You use the, the stars as a frame of reference so that you can orient yourself and go in the right direction. Likewise, the Dhamma principles... We use these Dhamma principles, we feed the information in so that we have a sense of the right direction. And then we invest our effort accordingly. We practice accordingly. And in Pali this is called the Pariyati and the Patipati. There's the theory of practice, which is what the books are about, this reminder, the place of integrity, the place of patience, the place of determination, the place of loving kindness, the place of forgiveness, these virtues that support us on the journey, but then we have to invest in the journey. And if all we know is the principles, well, that's, you know, that's like a doctor that's done lots of study, you know, like an acupuncturist who's, who's been to the best Chinese school but never stuck a needle in anybody. I wouldn't want to be their first patient. <laughs> you know, acupuncturists can read, oh, there's, there's this meridian here going down the leg there, and there's that meridian, there's that meridian there, and, and here's this needle, really nice, high-quality Japanese needle, you know, not some blunt thing. That, you know, it's nice, clean, fresh, sterile needle. So, you know, but they've never stuck a needle in anybody. Getting the needle in right is really, it takes a skill. If you're training as a nurse, they, you, teach, you practice on oranges. You know, you stick it in. I remember the first time I stuck a needle in somebody, was going, boing, 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 boing. <laughs> Didn't, it wasn't right. You, know, you got in the right amount of effort. You got, don't hold back, just like that. You know. 
If you go too far, you hit the bow bottle. That's not good either. The right amount of effort, that's called practice. That's different from pariyati. <clears throat> so with the, the reminder, the pointing that we refer to as the Dhamma, it's, it's got the two aspects it's worth remembering. It's got the, yes, the principles, the theory, the pariyati, which we need to study. Otherwise, we could end up going the wrong direction yeah, completely. But then it's got the practice. One without the other is not a really good idea. We need both. And then there's the other traditional reminder that we refer to as the conventional sangha. The monks and nuns who have committed their life to living simply so that they can focus on the inner exploration, the inner journey. Of all these structures of hundreds and hundreds of rules and discipline and commitment to renunciation so that the energy is learned to focus in the right direction and and, uh, one of the reasons that the Buddha set this up, set up the Sangha or the spiritual renunciate community was because in his own experience when he was 29 years old and confused and disoriented yeah. The Buddha did, before he was the Buddha, was confused. He wasn't always the Buddha. You know, he didn't get born as the Buddha, although you read some of the books and the stories, it does sound like it's all a bit exaggerated, really. But the reality, I think we can assume, is that for the first 29 years of his life, the Buddha was getting around, just you know, trying to figure it out and making do with the best he could. But then we're told that he came across old age, sickness and death for the first time. In other words, 29, is a good time to expect somebody to start growing up and some of the adolescent veils to fall away and you start to see, wow, this is what it's about. This is not the picnic, but I thought it was going to be. And for the Buddha, like many of us, around that stage of life, it is a wake-up call. You say, what's this all about? What is this all about? You mean you just get old, get sick and die, and that's it. And so the Buddha was disoriented. He'd been protected. He'd been mollycoddled up until that point. They tried to avoid him seeing the unpleasant side of life, but one way or another, fortunately he did see it, and then it was, what are we going to make of this? What are we going to do with this? Well, fortunately, traditionally we're told, that's the point where he saw a sannyasin, or a truth seeker, somebody wearing the ochre robes. Not that ochre is anything particularly magical or mystical, it's just the easiest colour you can get from vegetable dye. Uh, you don't want to project too much on the ochre robes, it's just that, you know, like if you, we, we use, in Thailand, we use uh, jackfruit, kanun, and um, the wood, and when you chop it up into chips and boil it up, it comes out this nice yellow resin which put it on your white cloth and it comes out like this colour. You could just as well use tea leaves, actually. Tea leaves gives a nice brown colour as well. So do onion skins. Anyway, that's getting a little distracted. But the Buddha set up the monastic community because, one, it was really helpful for those who wanted to live it to have the supports for stewarding their interest in realisation, but two, it also helped remind the lay people. You know, those that, for whatever reason, didn't want to make this commitment, they had a reminder. 
getting around, you know, having nice food, however good the food is, it doesn't save us from suffering. Even friends, you know, may have some really nice friends, but it still doesn't save us from suffering. Money doesn't save us from suffering. Money and friends and food are all really nice, you know, very agreeable to have. But what's more important to have than that is to have done our work, which is to have cultivated the body, speech and mind so that we're in line with that which your heart is longing, which is freedom from unawareness. Unawareness is the disease that we suffer. The reminders that the Buddha gave, the teacher, the teachings, the spiritual community, these reminders point in the direction. So don't forget, this is what matters most in life. So when we're chanting the Dhamma Chakra Bhavatana Sutta, this is a way to think of it. All the Buddha's teachings are reminders. And we're very fortunate to have them. Not everybody has them. Yeah. I think in the book, Elders Huxley's book, The Island, uh, some of you might have read that book and you remember that that uh, there was these miners trained to perform the function of of going squawk, 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 attention, attention, yeah. remember, remember. I think he also advocated mescaline, which we're not advocating here. You know, we're advocating mindfulness, not mescaline. But... The point is, we need these reminders, so pay attention, pay attention. And we do, as followers of the Buddha, have the good fortune to have inherited these traditional reminders, the discourses, the Buddha image, the spiritual community. But also, if we train our attention to remember, to be present here and now, and to see what's going on, There's also everyday reminders, like, for instance, one of my favorite reminders about practice, about the direction that really matters most, is whenever my mind comes up with this thought, it shouldn't be this way. That's a reminder. When that thought comes in, it shouldn't be this way, what we're doing there is indulging in a habit of resisting reality. Now, we learnt at some stage of life that we have this ability to go along with or to resist, uh, to indulge or to deny. We we have this ability, we can do this, we can exercise will. We can indulge or we can deny. And uh, When reality is disagreeable, basically we don't like what's happening, we resist it. That shouldn't be this way. Now, functional resistance absolutely has its place. You know, the immune system in our body is a functional form of resistance which protects this organism from being invaded by you know, things that are going to damage us. You know, likewise, to be able to tell somebody that's not okay, pull back. You know, I'm not going along with bad-mouthing or, or humiliating or abusing people. Uh, you tell somebody, no, you resist. But that's not compulsive resistance. That's not motivated by the wish to hurt. You know, that's skillful resistance. So we're not taking an idealistic principle about not resisting anything. That would, you know, that would 
We'd suffer terribly if we did that. You know, there is skillful resistance. But compulsive, unaware resistance, that gets us into a lot of trouble. And so when we have the thought, it shouldn't be this way, that's the time to remember. That's the time to remember. What are we doing when we're resisting reality? What are we doing right now in this moment? Ajahn Chah was the one who first pointed this out to me, and some of you may have heard me talk of this before when I'd had an operation on my knees. You know, probably it was you know, repairing the damage from a motorbike accident I'd had and also uh, overzealous efforts to be able to sit on the floor and look like a proper monk, you know, like Tantita Panya here, crossed leg, upright. That's what I wanted to look like. But I was, I mean, I was a mess. I, you know, I could really, I was really struggling. I, as you see, I've given up. You know, I sit on a chair out there. But for years I tried to do the real thing, what I thought was the real thing, and look like a proper monk. And that didn't help my very sad and sorry knees. So at the age of 29 I had to have an operation to try and repair the damage. And the doctor said, oh, yeah, no problem, do both knees at the same time and should be in and out in a couple of weeks. And I think, uh, well, it's a long time ago now, I think it was actually more like two months. And I still could, I still could nowhere could I sit on the floor. No way could I sit on the floor. I couldn't even bow. I couldn't. When Ajahn Chah came to visit and I wanted to get down to bow, I couldn't do it. And, and I started complaining to him. I was like, oh, Lumpur, it shouldn't be this way. The doctor said this and this. And he looked at me as if I was a complete idiot. I said, well, what do you mean it shouldn't be this way? If it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. What's your problem? <laughs> so, all right, he's got a point. There are causes for it to be this way. Why, why would I be indulging in resisting this and saying it shouldn't be this way? Yeah. So when we hear that thought in our minds, it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. I should be doing better than this. They shouldn't be this way. Why is that person so insensitive? They shouldn't be this way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a reminder. Yeah. Now, it's not another excuse to give ourselves a bad time. But if we do that, that also can be a right. As soon as we catch ourselves and remember, that's it. We're practicing again. Until we forget. Again, it's something uh, my other teacher that I was fortunate to live with, uh, Ajahn Tate, once told me, and I'm very grateful for when I had been uh, talking to him about practice, and he said, yep, that's, that's, that's very good. He said, from now on, You've just got to remember quicker. So just because we have some opening or some new understanding or some uh, shift in perspective or appreciation of reality doesn't mean to say that it's always going to be that way. And this is why we have what we call power now or cultivation. Yes, the opening, the insight, the introduction to a new level of appreciation of reality is, a, is wonderful and we're grateful for that. But then we need to remember in the right way. We don't just cling to it. It's not that sort of remembering. It's a skill for memory. How do we do the right kind of remembering? Well, that's why we have all these pointers, and we need as many pointers and as many reminders as we can get. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.